Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everybody. Here in podcast uh, radio land, we used to call it, and I still do call it that sometimes. Here we are with an election approaching October 22nd, 2020, and the COVID meltdown continues all around the country and much of the world. We'll only be talking about COVID matters briefly toward the end of the show. I think typically it's useful to address them, even if briefly, and it does appear to be a feature of our landscape going forward. And that will, of course, uh, be told with time. Meanwhile, on, on, a, on a brighter note, I am always uh, happy to uh, let listeners know that I have Bill Padalo co-hosting with me today. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Always, always good to be with you. Yes, thank you. And uh, Bill has unearthed, uncovered. You might even say gold mine in some ways. Yet another elaborate piece of the Chase Wamu fraud, which listeners will know goes all the way back to the bankruptcy facilitated merger, basically the liquidation of Wamu mortgage assets into the Chase banking family back in starting September 2008. So Bill is going to have a lot of excellent intel and insight on this topic. And then briefly, he'll be talking about some uh, creative, creative naming that Wilmington Savings Fund Society has recently been involved in. Uh, but the main part of the show will be discussing the uh the Chase Wamu uh just it, it's an elaborate honeycomb of of uh, again this is not a legal term and I use the word uh disclaimingly it's an open sore of fraud shall we say so Bill go ahead and and uh, and poke into that open sore if you would <laughs> Yeah, it, well, it's a it's a gaping wound uh, for Chase, I think, now at this point. Uh, uh, so we've got a lot of October surprises apparently coming out in the media, and and though this doesn't pertain to any election, um, this could be definitely considered October surprise material. But um, kind of picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, really talking about that uh, big find regarding the shredding of the notes and. Uh, I touched upon a couple weeks ago how 
Chase was manipulating these uh, servicing records, uh, screenshots, specifically the loan transfer histories, uh, to uh, fit the narrative of whatever jurisdiction or case they were in and trying to foreclose or enforce whatever mortgage or deed, depending on what state, uh, and, and what they were doing to manipulate those um, loan transfer history screenshots. And so we talked about uh, the AO1 code, which has been really kind of the beginning of the end of how this has all really come together. That, that stipulation of that investor code AO1 uh, a couple years ago in 2018 in the California Fox case was really um, a, a, a big moment because it really caused, uh, it put Chase on its heels really to try to uh, overcome that stipulation where they had said for years and years that uh, these codes, especially AO1, which is a, a, a very common code in just about everyone's uh, WAMU loan uh, transfer history or, or the uh, servicing record history, that's a very common code. Uh, but it really put Chase on their heels because, you know, their story that they had stuck to for so long is these WAMU loans, if you couldn't identify it in any particular public trust through the SEC or through a Bloomberg terminal or whatever uh, system that uh, uh, people use to kind of look up and research loan-level data on these things, if it didn't really pop out and show up anywhere, uh, then it was real convenient for Chase simply to say, uh, in parrot fashion, bank-owned, bank-owned, all these codes, whatever shows up, uh, WAMU never sold and securitized it, uh, therefore it went to the receivership of the FDIC, we own it, bank-owned. So <clears throat> that story now, uh, it, it, on top of everything else that uh, we brought up last uh, show, um, has really been blown up by the fact that I now have access to the MSP system uh, transaction codes. And this is a pretty significant um, document. It has, uh, I haven't counted them up officially, but there's hundreds of hundreds of these codes. And uh, it doesn't have the investor codes. The investor codes is what's in, the, what, call, what Chase uses, it's called the Lisa system within the MSP platform. So for listeners out there, the MSP system is a servicing platform that is probably the most widely used by all the primary uh, servicers across the United States, and it has been the system of use. Um, it's owned by uh, LPS, which is now Black Knight, and um, it's a universal system. So when I talk about these codes, it's very likely that they don't just apply to Washington Mutual Chase necessarily. The transaction codes, um, I've already seen um, in a couple of other cases that weren't necessarily WAMU loans, but the loan history screenshots that are all similar uh, appear to have the same, the same code. So it's very likely they do apply uh, in other cases, not just WAMU. So, um, but anyhow, it's uh, these these. If anybody's been out there and in litigating and uh, has been in discovery and you've gotten some data dump or even a response, uh, I've even seen these servicing uh, history screenshots come back in QWR requests sometimes. But oftentimes in discovery, you know, they'll uh, they'll include these screenshots. Some of them, sometimes they're heavily redacted for for certain reasons and. Sometimes uh, not, and sometimes uh, when I'm 
can now see uh, uh, when I compare these uh, screenshots in many, many cases now, I've got a pretty good sampling to show where they've actually gone in and manipulated, altered, removed things from there um, intentionally. But anyway, um, these screenshots are just covered in codes. And a lot of times you'll see um, along the bottom, there's a little bit of a chart or an index as to what some of the codes mean. But there's a lot of codes that uh, clearly um, you can't decipher what they mean. It's kind of like uh, hieroglyphics in a uh, Egyptian pyramid. But um, so no one knows what they mean. And then you go into a deposition uh, and you ask the witness or the person most knowledgeable in deposition or on the witness stand, and um, conveniently they they say uh, they don't know what the code means. They just simply what is this? If you walk through these screenshots with the witness in a deposition. Um, and I've got a mountain of these depositions, you'll ask, what does this code mean? I don't know. What is this one? I don't know. I have no idea. Blah, blah, blah. And then you say, well, who would know? I don't know. Who would I go to to find this info? Who would you go to to find the information? So they play coy, and they just, they never, ever, ever uh, answer the question. So that's just, that's just their method of operation. Um, so anyhow, in these codes, the real, there's some real key ones is uh, what are called the payee codes, and this is really the, uh, the the best part of this whole entire list of the codes is because the payee codes are usually aligned with a series of transactions in the screenshots that show all kinds of uh, dollar amounts, uh, either regarding the loan or fees or you know all kinds of different parties, insurance, you know, just all the money transactions regarding the account going in and out of that account and the dates it's going in and out of the account and those payee codes um, clearly show especially in these uh, all these cases where uh, Chase says this is WAMU bank owned we own it to the FDIC the loan was never sold and securitized and now the payee codes uh, shines light and, and clearly shows that the loans were securitized into uh, all kinds of different securitization transactions. And the payees on these transactions, the codes clearly show that. They talk about everything from, you know, recoverable advances, non-recoverable advances. So uh, so I, I uh, when chatting with you and Neil yesterday about today's show, you know, I said, listen, um, if Washington Mutual Bank originated a loan and then they held on to it and never sold it per Chase's story, and they retain their own servicing rights for the loan, um, it doesn't seem very logical that they would be making giant uh, advances of principal and interest and so on and so forth to themselves and then claim that those advances were non-recoverable or recoverable. So it's, uh, it, yeah, there's some real obvious things there. But anyway, I, I, if anybody has um, had a back pattern, if you've been foreclosed or you're in foreclosure uh, and you've been through the discovery portion where you've got these loan histories and you can't make heads or tails of what any of this means and you want to and you think possibly uh, uh, they weren't telling the truth, about owning uh, the loan or so on and so forth, you know, you certainly might want to reach out and shoot me an email and uh, uh, get a hold of me because um, this information is going to come come out on a broad scale very soon. In fact, I've been 
uh, immersed in uh, this subject matter pretty exclusively for about the last six weeks um, on a couple of really big cases. So it's really sucked up a vast majority of my time. But there's some filings. Uh, there's a cliffhanger to keep listeners kind of on pins and needles. There's going to be some filings coming out uh, very soon uh, that will be in the public record. And uh, once that's done, um, we'll certainly I'll let uh, Neil and you know, Charles, and uh, certainly this this can be posted and uh, discussed um, at that time. But uh, we're we're on the the verge of, of uh, some very critical big key filings that's going to spell out exactly what this whole scheme entails. And to sum it up, you know, it's a very simple, it's, it's becoming more clear and easy to understand why this happened, why Chase has resorted to the forging, fabrication, and alteration of all these documents. Um, so, for example, if you go to the FDIC website on the receivership, just last month, the FDIC posted uh, their, I don't know, call it a press release or whatever, but they posted on their government website um, a, a few paragraphs discussing the settlement that occurred in all the um, litigation in the WAMU Inc. bankruptcy between Deutsche, Chase, and the FDIC. And what's very telling in that post is they have the embedded settlement, for example, of the uh, Deutsche Bank uh side agreement with Chase. And it's very clear what happened here is that, and and this goes to the uh, securities litigation in the WAMU Inc., so this is pertaining to uh, tens of thousands of loans that were in a very, you you can look up the list of all the different various trusts that were involved in this litigation. But at the end of the day, the courts adjudicated and said that the FDIC actually was liable was was found liable for all of the claims that Deutsche Bank made for all the defective uh, issues that they you know filed their claim on for all these loans. And what that's what's really telling about that is the FDIC ended up uh, you know shuffling some money around and ended up awarding Deutsche a three billion dollar unsecured claim in the uh, receivership estate. But what's very clear when when you look at the embedded side agreement uh, between Deutsch and you look at the releases and and what was released in there, um, it's very clear that uh, the trustee Deutsch for these tens of thousands of uh, loans in these securitized trusts, many of which have never been disclosed in anybody's chains of title, that Deutsch realized that the document, documentation was so defective and non-existent that it was legally unenforceable. They had issues of enforceability of, of the loans, right? So, so when they basically said the endorsements aren't on the notes, okay, the assignments weren't prepared before Wamu died, all of this stuff is fatally defective, uh, and they were fighting over this, the FDIC got held, got stuck with it, and essentially to to say, okay, all right, we're FDIC, we're liable for this garbage because uh, um, that's just the way it shakes out. But the FDIC wasn't forced to repurchase. They weren't forced to buy it back. Um, and so... What, what happens here is Deutsche's trustee signs off, gets their settlement, 
releases everything and walks away, the FDIC has no record of anything other than, you know, this was a disaster by WAMU and we're stuck uh, with some liability for pennies on the dollar, I guess, out of the estate or the receivership. And so what's left is Chase's opportunistic uh, uh, by saying, wow, we're going to just basically proceed and plow ahead as though everything's kosher, and we're going to forge and fabricate and create whatever documents we need to carry out and steal and harvest all of these homes and foreclosure situations. And um, and they've been getting away with it. Uh, so if, if Deutsche said, yeah. No, Bill, just to clarify, I mean, essentially this whole scheme, and it is a scheme, you know, again, not using that as a legal term, this scheme has been operating for, for what, 12-plus uh, years now? Well, yeah. I mean, it, the Deutsche litigation, for example, uh, just on these loans I was just saying, uh, you know, that happened the day after the receivership, so September 26th of 08, and that litigation up until the point of settlement was all the way up until 2017. So you're talking nearly a decade of this litigation that was taking place simultaneously while Chase has decided to take the liberty that uh, during the course of that litigation, we're just going to say we own it all. And we got it all, and everything is good. We've got the original notes, and they're endorsed properly, and so on and so forth. And they're just just chugging ahead and taking every home they can in sight. And there's and they've been saying we got it through the purchase and assumption agreement. Well, now we know that's all bunk. Uh, the FDIC, uh, as we talked about in previous shows and posts, uh, they basically these were isolated assets. They didn't come through. The receivership, the FDIC is now has their own database. They, they'll, they'll disclaim knowledge of any of this. And what you can clearly see is if the, if the FDIC was held liable, uh, as they were, uh, then that means that these were securitized loans. They, they were off the books and records of Washington Mutual Bank, and uh, somebody had to be held liable for it, and that's the way it shook out. So, again, Chase's story is the loans were never sold and securitized. They've said that under oath, penalty of perjury. They've said these codes mean bank owned, and they've stuck with that story. And now, when all of this information is now coming to light, and now that I've got the codes, and now that I've got the contracts for the destruction of the notes, and now that I've got all of this where I can assemble it and lay it out side by side by side by side, all the different cases, and you can see, I mean, it's crystal clear uh, once you lay out dozens of these cases uh, and, and how they manipulated the data to fit their narrative, um, you can clearly see this is why, this is the, this is the whole, um, you know, the, 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 I guess the motivation or the motive as to why they why they're having to forge and fabricate the documents. Okay, they were defective from day one, and they were unenforceable, and they didn't have the, the documents. So they created a time machine, and uh, so to speak, and um, suddenly they're uh, all the endorsements are legit, all the assignments are legit. They're holding the original notes. All of it's a fabricated story. So now, I mean. Um, uh, I've got a whole series of cases that I spell out and show uh, where Chase is now in recent last couple of years 
where they can't keep their story straight, where they're coming in saying they owned it, never securitized, and then suddenly uh, they trip up and admit that it wasn't a trust. And they do this after they've gotten a judgment. So a couple weeks ago I talked about uh, a case in New York where they – six years of contentious litigation saying we own it, you know, it's uh, never been sold or securitized, you know. And then suddenly after they get the judgment and the case is on appeal, suddenly they screwed up and admitted that it was in a Lehman Trust, in the Lehman bankruptcy of all places. So anyway, um, it's real crystal clear now that if now that I have these codes and I look at these servicing record screenshots, I can pretty much decipher and show that the loan was sold and securitized to undisclosed hidden investors. I, I can pretty much uh, uh, say that right now from the from the code shot. So this has got a uh, this is pretty groundbreaking. I think this uh, this whole thing is there's no tread left on the tire here of this whole story of uh, Chase saying that they got anything through that receivership or they own this. It's um, uh, there's there's just too much evidence now to prove otherwise. Um, so. Uh- Bottom line. The bottom line sounds like is that any listener out there with a WAMU-generated loan that became part of the Chase receivership, it's essentially and potentially. It sounds like beyond potentially. Uh, I mean, there's a good chance that it's going to line up with the fraud that you're 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 discussing, right? Oh, oh, no, absolutely. Uh, and even if there is a, an identifiable trust, they've got a lot of problems with going back and fabricating the necessary documents to carry out a, either a non-judicial sale because they still have to create assignments, which the FDIC didn't have the authority to grant because they didn't own it and it didn't come through the receivership. And we all, they also have the uh, dockline reports, which show that uh, they were fabricating and putting these endorsements on the note in preparation to foreclose or for litigation, uh, and so they're they're fabricating everything, and so no matter what, if you whether I can identify a trust or not, or if Chase has taken the position it was never sold and securitized, which has been their story in affidavits and depositions, that can be completely debunked, and I can show that that's a flat out false lie, and I can prove it. And that. You know the the goldstone for what's needed at the discovery phase. What's needed, especially when there's a motion for summary judgment pending in the types of uh, non-judicial foreclosure lawsuits that you see in places like California, and even in a judicial uh, foreclosure setting, uh, having that documentation, having that, particularly through the discovery pro- process. That of course is available in a, in a judicial uh, foreclosure lawsuit. Yeah, as much for defendants as it is for plaintiffs. There, the defendant borrowers. That's a huge deal that they can use. Essentially, the particulars of what you're talking about to create the evidence and the framework for evidence to expose the fraud and. It should, on paper, prevent the judicial foreclosure from going forward. It should defeat it at trial, possibly prior to trial. I mean, it really sets up a defense motion for some judgment. 
Oh, a- absolutely. Um, there's there's such an overwhelming amount of, uh, of of evidence here to create those issues of fact that certainly uh, summary judgments uh, should never be granted if, if if they're following the rules and following proper procedure. Um, in my view, uh, there's there's just too much here to uh, and we know exactly what is if there's any issue of fact, we know exactly how to to uh, show what they're doing and prove that they're doing it. And uh, as I said, um, they don't, they alter and they refuse to produce specific documents that we know is in their custody and control. We know it's in the system, but it will certainly incriminate them if they produce it. Now, these codes, um, it's going to be, I, I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be now when they've been producing these uh, MSP screenshots for years, how they would now suddenly not produce them or say they don't exist. Um, because now it's a pretty simple thing. Give us the screenshots, and if they're already there, now now we can kind of decipher what these codes means and we can prove. It, it just, it's, 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 pretty, it's just pretty clear and convincing stuff in my view. And I think one of the compelling aspects of it is it does create the possibility for new types of litigation, possibly some collective uh, action litigation. I think one of the frustrating aspects of litigating the race judicata rules, which, frankly, I say this even as a consumer law attorney, the race judicata rules are needed generally. Otherwise, you you can have disputes that could go to, go on in some Dickinsonian uh, nightmare scenario for years and years and years, or even decades, with a continual resuing of matters. Uh, so, race judicata rules are needed. There needs to be the potential for finality of a dispute through a judgment. On the other hand, the level of fraud here, the level of criminality, frankly, uh, the level of abuse of the system, it's so deep, it's so broad, it's so tentacled, it's so entrenched. Uh, It needs to be fought. It should be fought. Uh, This topic we will absolutely be continuing. Uh, We... um, we have very limited time on the uh, Wilmington matter. I think we'll bring that up uh, in our next show, Bill. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I wanted to make one other quick point is that what these codes lead sure. to and even what the findings that we talked about on the last show is that it opens up the door for subpoenas to an awful lot of third parties out there who have knowledge to this. So, for example, uh, Xerox Corporation that took over ACS, who was uh, keeping records of all the destroyed files uh, by Washington Mutual. I mean, they're a prime target, I would say, for subpoena. Uh, they still exist, and according to those contracts, they were required to maintain uh, these records of everything that they destroyed. <laughs> so um, it's it, there's also in these pay codes, there's all kinds of evidence that leads to third parties to go out and, um, and start to uh, bring in and see, uh, uh, see what they have to say and what they have to produce to help and support the, the fraud that we're alleging. Right, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, we will absolutely, Bill and I, be revisiting this topic uh, multiple times because, again, what he has unearthed, what Bill has unearthed here it's 
you could even use the term shocks the conscience, though, frankly, we're beyond that now. Bill, Bill, Bill and I, Neil as well, uh, since, again, this has all run so deep and so broad and so abusively for so many years. Uh, nevertheless, it should shock the conscience, and I hope uh, some of the listeners have been by that. So I will talk briefly about uh, one of the COVID angles that I, I think uh, certainly attorneys around the country are coming into uh, borrower attorneys all over the country, the attorneys on the other side, uh, a lot of borrowers themselves, virtually all hearings now all over the except in a handful of states, certainly the coastal states, are uh, typically uh, not in person. I think Florida, interestingly enough, because they have been less draconian in their lockdown orders, uh, may still allow some court appearances. We'll have to have Neil weigh in on that at some point. Uh, California, virtually all court appearances are are virtual now, and there are a lot of um, a lot of aspects to that. Uh, I've got some strategies which uh, I don't have time to discuss now, but I will on a, on a future show on how to approach audio and video uh, presentation, essentially, in a uh, COVID-compliant environment. How's that for a term? So, thank you again, Bill. Uh, Bill and I will be back on a future show and thank the listeners and we will be with you again. Have a great weekend, Charles. The opinions expressed on the Neil Garfield show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.